Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. So 2021 is here. Let's hope it's a bit better than the last year. And we're back with the podcast, which explores the talent and research of our staff and students here. A quick bit of housekeeping compared from our podcast in 2020, we're going fortnightly with this podcast. We will have a few specials that we throw in every now and again as well. Now, what New Year's resolutions have you got? Did you, did you set any? We get to this point of the year, I think every year, and after a period of indulgence, many of us take up exercise programs. Uh, we think carefully about our food and drink, cut back on excess. And there's always the rise in the popularity of Veganuary as well, of course. So how best to get a better balance and how to stick to these New Year's resolutions? So I'm joined this week by Dr. Kathy Martin, Principal Lecturer in Nutrition. Thanks for your time, Kathy. Nice to see you. Thank, you thank you, nice, Richard. Very nice. Have you had a nice uh, festive period? And as always yeah, with the... <laughs> good. Um, and as always with the podcast, we start by getting to know a, a little bit about you first, a little bit about your background. So could you take us on a little whistle-stop tour of your career up to this point? Okay, well, I first, um, when I was young, much younger, I was actually a nurse, and I am a registered nurse by profession. So my whole working life has been in and around nursing and healthcare. Um, but whenever I was nursing, didn't matter whether I was um, leading in ITU or acute care services or even in community services, I always believed that food um, and nutrition was really important. So I, I did quite an unusual thing at that time. Was I, I went away and I did an undergraduate degree in uh, physiology and then a master's degree in medical nutrition. So um, the desire to understand more about the relationship between ourselves and our food and why we eat and what we're eating all those sorts of things have has been quite significant in throughout my working life um, and more recently of course I'm involved with some national and international work with um, charitable organizations um, and that's been fantastic it's given me opportunities to engage with work in India um, the Americas um, Australia and across this so I'm quite an eclectic person, so I am a nurse at heart. I'm always a nurse at heart. Mm -hmm. You say you're always a nurse first. Yeah, I'm always a nurse first. Well, I am also a registered nutritionist, but mm -hmm. I and I and those two roles have sort of very much come together for me. So they're very much two roles that I bring together. Mm -hmm. Well, this conversation will work very well then, because you can see it from lots of different angles. Um, and how long have you worked at the university, Kathy? Far too long, far too long. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I got my long service award. So um, right. a, 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 good, a good long time I've been engaged with the University of Brighton and the University of Sussex and of course the medical school as well, which, which mm -hmm. crosses both campus. Mm -hmm. um, right, we're going to talk a little bit about the course you teach on um, and your research a bit later. We'll touch on that a bit later on. Let's get stuck into um, our conversation. So first then, New year, new you. We see it everywhere. We see it every year. It's the same cycle over and over again. We'll have the same conversations with our family and friends about the changes that we're going to make with our lives and how this is going to be the year that we become more healthier, all that kind of stuff. So we all know that then, and we're, you know, I want to give some inspiration to people here as well, but we all sort of then just fall off the wagon a little bit. So how do we stick, stick to realistic goals? Well, firstly, I think the most important thing is, is don't feel guilty for having enjoyed Christmas and maybe overindulged. I think as, as people, we need to have um, those moments in our life when we are enjoying ourselves and we are enjoying our food and hopefully not too much of the alcohol, but by all means, enjoy the odd glass or two of alcohol uh, and socialise. We are very social in nature. So I think the first thing to always say is never feel guilty 
um, if you've had a, an indulgent Christmas. And I think this year in particular, it's been a very difficult year for a lot of people. Um, and I want people to feel that they're going to start 2021 feeling more positive, having had at least a more positive end to the year than maybe they'd had earlier. So that's, I think, a, a number one thing is never feel guilty. And then if you're going to make an effective lifestyle change, you really have to decide on what that change is. And there has to be something that's important to you. So don't do something just because your friends are or your mates are or your family think it'd be a good idea. It has to be a change that you want to do um, and something that's going to be important for you as a person, um, because that's going to give you the motivation to stick with it um, and to think about how you might make that change in your lifestyle. Um, it's really useful when you're thinking to make a change in lifestyle to not only think about why you want to make the change. So what is it that you're trying to achieve? Do you want to lose a little bit more weight? Do you want to be a little bit more active? Is it a combination of both those things? Um, and maybe consider what might be a barrier to some of the things that might stop you doing that. So there's no good trying to change things when you know um, that actually there are a lot of things that are going to stop you making that change and um, very practical things, you know, resources, money, time. OK, so be realistic about what sort of change you're going to be making um, and then set really small and attainable steps. If you're thinking, for example, of losing weight, you didn't suddenly wake up on January the 1st overweight. This isn't something that happened just because you had an indulgent Christmas. This is something that will have been creeping up on you for possibly a period of time. So don't expect yourself to have dramatic weight loss very quickly. You know, a small weight loss over a longer period of time has always been shown to be more effective than people that make um, very dramatic changes. And I'm sure, as you've already said, we all know people who start January with great positive ideas. Um, but by February, of course, um, they've fallen off the wagon or they've had that, that meal that they weren't going to have or they feel that they've cheated on their diet. So that in itself then becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. So I suppose the big thing is it has to be a change that you want to do. You have to think about why you want it, what might stop you doing it, and then break it down to really small um, but attain attainable steps that you can say, yeah, do you know, I have lost a pound this week, or I have walked uh, another thousand steps th today, or I did walk two more stops before the bus stop, or I did um, go to the gym with my friends and I enjoyed it. So really small things that you then look back on and chart your improvement. Do you, do you think sometimes the problem is that it becomes their you know, like a, a more of a challenge rather than a goal. So you, you're part of this big challenge that other people are taking part in as well, your friends and family. So they go all in with um, with one thing. So it might be all Veganuary or it might be all dry January. Um, and someone's just, and then someone's just gone completely cold turkey and you've completely changed your lifestyle in, a, 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 you know, in, in 24 hours or you're trying to anyway and that's why it's so difficult to to stick to some of those goals maybe trying to find something which has a bit more of a better balance is probably the better way to go absolutely and i think some people do need a challenge though i mean there are some people who do very who do respond very well to saying right it's january this is the day this is the year that i'm going to make these changes so some people do need that focus at the beginning just to kick start them to begin to think about how they may be making lifestyle changes in the future but for others you're quite right this sort of thing oh well we'll do it in january and it's almost as if if i can do it in january and i don't need to do it in february or march or april or may mm. because i've done what i set out to do which was to not drink during january or to not eat as much during january but of course those aren't really 
changing your lifestyle. They're just um, achieving a challenge. But I do think that there are some people who actually will respond to that challenge. They just need something to kickstart them into thinking along different ways. And so I think the secret really is, is once you've started whatever it is that you intended to do in, in January, as you're cre creeping up to February, you think, okay, I've made a start on this change. I've done something. What am I going to do in February? How am I going to sustain it? So make yourself actively think about the next steps it may, you might want to take. So you make the decision that it's not just a January thing. Okay. Although we need to accept that some people do like the challenge of just doing something very quick, very short. But I think in their hearts, they're probably not planning on sustaining it for any length of time. Hmm. Do you think in general, maybe this pandemic has got some people into some bad habits, maybe more treats at home? You know, a lot of us, we can't go out and, and do what you've, you've been used to doing for, for years. And so because of that, you kind of compensate with something at home. But you might, because you're at home, you might end up doing it more often. I think this year undoubtedly has changed all the ways in which we are living. I mean, it's been unprecedented, the sorts of things that we've had to um, overcome from the first lockdown to the second lockdown and the tier system so this this year I think has been an exceptional year and there is some some evidence that's suggesting that there's been a greater uh, purchasing of alcoholic drinks for um, in-house consumption and and we're all very aware that more people are baking more people are cooking and of course as humans we do have this tendency to use food both when we're happy but also when we're feeling distressed and anxious. So I think there will always be people who, who turn to food or turn to, to drink as a, as a way of dealing with the stressors of their lives. So I think you're quite right, this pandemic uh, will have had an impact on the way people are actually living. Um, and that might be added to by the slight overemphasis on possibly using takeaway meals because of course we can't go out to restaurants unless you're having a sustainable meal or a substantial meal i think they, they called it and of course the whole phrase substantial meal um implies that you've got to have something quite big to eat you know this whole concept of having that substantial meal if you're going to a pub the emphasis on takeaways you know um a lot of restaurants and a lot of um the existing fast food chains but a lot of restaurants have shifted to takeaways as a means of surviving um, the COVID-19 um, pandemic and the restrictions on them being able to open to the public so I think this year has been a particularly interesting year in how those um, those external factors have shifted our behaviours and of course the other thing that's happened is that so many of us are working from home now we're sitting in front of a computer um, or a laptop and we may be not walking so much and I was only saying to some colleagues the other day that I was horrified one day when I looked at my um, step counter and I'd only done 365 steps from normally doing at least 3,000 to 5,000 steps in a day. It had plummeted to 365. So I think that whole way in which we're working has had a potential impact. So possibly we have got into more bad habits. And then maybe what we need to do is to be more proactive and more positive um, in the ways we, the, we shift our new way of working to sustain our healthier living. It works the other way, I guess, as well, though, that because we've been at home so much more, maybe people that haven't been that, you know, maybe they didn't cook that much before. Maybe people, more people have learned to cook. Um, better structure in terms of meal planning, making sure there is a bit more of a balanced diet throughout the week and you know, things are, are well planned. It, the fact that we've had more time to do that, more people 
might be in that situation too and actually be living a bit more of a healthier life rather than you know get maybe getting in from work late and, and shoving something in the oven or something absolutely i think for some people it, this has been a wonderful opportunity both to cook as a family but cook as a group um using the resources that they have but of course um, there's also an, another side to that in as much as there's a lot of people who what COVID-19 has demonstrated is, is the level of food insecurity and food poverty. Um, and so really the, we need to remember that for all those people for whom this has been a positive change, uh, people like myself, I have the resources to cook, um, to buy food, to get food, uh, to prepare meals and actually to waste food as well. So I, whilst I don't advocate wasting food, it's not going to break my bank if I cook a new meal, for example, and, and, and the family don't like it. But of course, for some people, they'll be the other side of the coin. And for them, making those changes to the way that they're living, they may very much like to cook and want to cook, but they may not have the resources, either in terms of food availability. They may not have a great kitchen. They may not have cooking facilities or fridge facilities. And so we need to remember that for those that it's been a positive adventure if i want to use that word there's others that this has been a real difficult adventure because food isn't hasn't been that easy for them to source well, whilst we're on that actually i mean it's, it's a good good point you, you make and we've seen uh, do you think there's there's a bit more of an awareness um from people because of things like um the free school meals and uh the campaigns of course which marcus rashford has been at the front of and and the profile that that has given um just raising awareness of food poverty um, do you think it's making more people think maybe about the food that they might waste and the food that they can donate and the ways that they can help? Because we've seen the fact that food banks and the contributions that they've had to be making have, have just risen hugely. Absolutely. I, I do know if we learn anything from, from the, the last year, what we need to learn is, that, is not to waste things um, and actually make a better use for you. So I think you're quite right. I think that, I, you know, I think we're all much more, more aware of things like food poverty, nutrition insecurity, and all those things. And it's a great time to be interested in food, actually, and to be researching food, because there's so many potential avenues where people are now thinking about food where they previously haven't done. Um, whether as a population as a whole, we're as, we're as good as that. Again, I think it, it's, it's probably too early to say, but I think it's more on the agenda of conversations and more people are, are aware of it. Um, you know, the number of food parcels that go out each, each day with the food banks, you know, the Trussell Trust and things like that. Um, the, the growth in, in organisations like Olio, which is trying to uh, reduce food wastage um, from supermarkets and things. So all of those positive moves are things that we can build on in the future. And I, and I, I think it's a really exciting time to be working within food and talking about food. Mm -hmm. um, January also means Veganuary. It's, um, hasn't, I don't know how long it's actually been around for, but it's been growing in popularity each year, it seems. Again, it goes back to something we, something very similar we were talking about just now, doesn't it? About cutting everything out and going for a sort of a challenge and a lifestyle change. Um, do you think there is generally though, I mean, I, I, I certainly see it among my, my peer group and, and even with ourselves in, in, in our house, there is a trend now. People are starting to realize that, you know, cutting out meat from a diet maybe during weekdays or something like that, um, it's becoming more of an increasing thing. 
I think, yes, I, I think that it is a very popular way of thinking. And I think um, as a healthcare professional and as a registered nutritionist, of course, our stance is always that people need to have a balanced diet. And we're not great fans of when people just cut things out. So we like the diet that always like someone to have a balanced diet. But there certainly is a, a, gr a growing consensus now, both in the research community, but in sort of public health fields, that a plant-based diet um, is more beneficial for us in, in terms of our health. And it's probably going to have um, positive outputs in terms of impacting on our climate, our environment, and all those other social concerns that in the last couple of years we've become much more aware of. Um, so I think a plant-based diet, uh, which doesn't exclude meat, but just means that you're eating less meat and less processed meat, um, is definitely a sort of across the world, the, the, the way that we're advocating people should consider their, their, their food in general and their diets in particular. Um, as health professionals, we, we never advocate a particular diet. There's no magic diet out there. There's no super diet. There's no uh, diet that will cure is, is suitable for everybody. Because of course, people at different stages in their life, they've got different health status. Um, some are older, some are frail, some are young. Um, and therefore, your nutrient requirement is going to be slightly different depending on, on how well you are or how unwell you are. And so to have a, just say that one form of diet is going to be the, the best diet um, is a little narrow thinking. And I think we need to be a bit more broader in our understanding about food more generally. So but definitely, I think everyone advocates a, um, a more plant-based diet with plenty of fruits and vegetables, plenty of nuts and legumes. Um, and seeds, um, but that doesn't mean people have to exclude meat um, if, if they're particularly fond of meat. But likewise, it doesn't mean that people have to eat meat either. So if people want to make a lifestyle change and don't want to eat meat, they can have a healthy, balanced diet without. Yeah, because this is one of the things that um, especially that a lot of people might throw out as a counter argument to, um, or just to vegans, basically, to being a vegan. Um, in this month you hear it again it's what it's the same recycle stuff we hear every single year isn't it when someone says well how can you be getting everything you need if you don't eat meat surely you're not getting all the nutrients you need and um, can you sort of uh quash well, that or is there or is, or is there some element to it um there is some element to it so people are often concerned about things like killing but actually if you've got a balanced diet and certainly if you look at all the recommendations across the world whether they're in a plate format or a pyramid format what you'll see is the food arranged in different food groups and some of those food groups will refer to uh, protein containing foods and that tends to be things like meat but of course it always says meat or meat alternatives so we've known for a long time that um, to have a um, to, it, that you can have a healthy balanced diet without actually consuming meat okay there are some potential um, difficulties in terms of individual nutrients but if you're careful about your diet so for example um, often people will say if you don't eat red meat you might become short of iron okay and whilst iron it's easier for your body to absorb the iron from meat of course iron is available in lots of green leafy vegetables as well but also it's it's often used in fortification of of common food stuff such as breakfast cereal so there are other ways of getting those um, nutrients into your body i think the secret is not to have um, a diet where you've just taken out one set of foods and not thought about how you might be replacing those nutrients with something else because you do need that healthy balance of all the nutrients in your diet yeah and like you say different things will work for different people and we'll come back to that um in a moment as well um veganuary seems to be met with some opposition by some um do you think it's it's the same 
that it's you know i think it's, it's kind of a relatively new thing in the mainstream a little bit like religious beliefs and people feeling like something's being forced on them i mean it's a, because it's because it comes this isn't you know you're not a veget you might be um it, maybe it's a little bit different to vegetarianism i don't know um, I don't know how, especially when that sort of kicked off again, like decades ago, I don't really, I wasn't here to see how that was, what the reaction was then either. But uh, I just, I just wonder whether, is it because there's so much more passion about it because we are talking about not just, you know, it's not just the lifestyle choice. We are talking about the extra things you were talking about. We're talking about animal welfare, climate change, so many different elements. Do you think that's why it's met with some opposition from people that just aren't keen to even give it the time? I think so, but I need to come clean here because I actually um, live on a farm. So mm. actually, I'm one of the. I, I come from a whole family of people who rear animals for human consumption. So we're, we're farmers, and I think the difficulty is as as people have become more aware um, of the impact of food production um, on our climate, um, on um, our environment, uh, and those sorts of things, people. Um, I begin to think about what it is that they're eating and how that the food that they're consuming um, might be contributing to the changes that they're actually seeing. Okay, and I think the difficulty is that people, when they're talking about food, are very emotion, emotive and very emotional. So, because the, the, the lifestyle choices people make are often influenced not just about the nutrients they're consuming, but actually that's about their belief systems, it's about their values, um, it's about their, um, their beliefs about society more generally. And therefore, they're investing a lot of, of emotion and time into making these lifestyle choices. Um, again, I think working in healthcare, what you learn to do is to balance opinions. So you look, you look at the um, evidence before you, and you, you, look, you learn very much to balance opinions. And I think often people who work in health and in nutrition were accused of just sitting on the fence a little bit, not making a decision either one way or the other. But the bottom line is that uh, we do all need to be aware of where our food is coming. I'd, I'd love people to have greater awareness of food production. I think people need to be more aware of what it means to produce food for a population of people. I think we need to be more aware of um, more seasonal foods. You know, um, is it really okay to have out of season foods 365 days of the year or should we be thinking about foods more, more seasonally? Um, I, I do believe we should be thinking about foods more locally so that um, when we're actually a little bit more aware of where our food has come from. So is it actually okay for somebody uh, in, a, in, a, in Africa to be growing food solely for the consumption of us here in England, or should we be much more altruistic and think, well, actually, you know, we need to have a, a broader view of food. So I think, I think we're now embarking on a period of time when we're having some really difficult conversations about food, how it's produced, and um, how it's marketed to us, uh, and the foods we're actually consuming. So I think it's, we're in for some interesting conversations, and there's always a lot of emotion whenever you start talking about food. Yeah, people do care a bit more about like, where their food's coming from, don't they? From you know, field to fork, basically. Um, and and uh, not to make myself sound too righteous here, we made a decision uh, about two years ago not to not to buy anything, any meat from a supermarket that we were gonna we were gonna get it from a local butcher, and and we and know where the meat's always come from. Similarly, you could do the same thing with grocers so to make sure that it was you know so that you make sure you're eating things that are in season. I think also that's there's no better time to be doing that kind of thing as well is there because you're if you're doing that you're looking after 
you know where you know everything that's going on your plate you know where it's come from but you also in this pandemic with local businesses you're also supporting your community absolutely i think this is a great opportunity for people to revisit how they perhaps have shopped previously how they're shopping in the future and if people have the resources and of course it does always come back to that unfortunately is that um, food can be relatively expensive. So if you're short of resources, either financially or in terms of your housing or in, in just in terms of the um, location in which you're living, you know, it's, 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 we have to be very careful that just because some people can afford to make big lifestyle changes in terms of the food they're, produce, they're buying, um, doesn't mean that everybody can. So I think we need to also think about food um, in terms of access to food and equitable access to food across the population a little bit better and it might be that that needs that that farmers have to reconsider some of the ways they're producing food so we have a much more sustainable agricultural system but also it means that maybe consumers have to think about the sorts of foods that they are purchasing um, and of course right in the middle we have all the big supermarkets and the big supermarket chains and maybe they need to develop ways and think about um, their role um, both in the sort of main providers of food, okay, but also the messages that they're sort of sending to people in terms of in, what they're encouraging people to buy. So I think we're in, you know, we need some really good conversations between producers, suppliers, consumers to really get a balanced view and a balanced understanding um, that's of benefit for the majority of our population. That conversation may be further confused by uh, Brexit, but we're not going to come on to that yet. With, uh, rising food prices <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Let's, let's not talk Brexit. Let's, let's not that. talk Brexit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm okay. I'm with you on that. Um, a recent study by um, University of Glasgow actually claims that pescatarians are less likely to develop heart disease compared to meat eaters and vegetarians. So it looks at a study over over eight years using some using a lot of data. Um, what do you think? Do you subscribe to a similar argument? Um, I think uh, undoubtedly, I think for a long time now, um, we've been advocating that people should have more fish in their diet, okay, and particularly oily fish. And I think that's, that's a, a well-known and well-trodden um, argument. Uh, the study in Glasgow is really interesting because it was comparing uh, pescatarian diets with vegetarian diets. And so it was really trying to um, give a little bit more detail. But I think to, um, to simply take a single diet and, and advocate that for everybody um, is always a, a, a difficult position to um, justify in terms of the evidence and the research, but also in terms of the outcomes. And I think, which is why that most people who are working um, with people related to food and nutrition, we always, very boringly, um, I'm often referred to as the um, the, the fun sponge, you know, I take away the fun of anybody having a diet. So I always come nice. back to the same <laughs> of having having a balanced diet, you know. So yes, we, we've been we wanted people to have more fish in their diet for a long time. We've always thought about at least two portions of of, of oily fish in the diet um, on a weekly basis. Um, so so that's not an unusual finding. Whether that can be translated into a diet for a whole population is, is another question again, because there's too many variables and too many other factors that you would have to take into consideration. Mm. Um, similar another, to the first, sorry. I was going to say another sitting on the fence answer. So, you know, <laughs> you go back to that balanced diet all the time. <laughs> um, similar to our first, where we started our conversation, where we were talking about taking up new um, 
like thinking about really what you're eating and, and going all in on something. Um, Booze did mention it earlier, but people may take up new exercise regimes as well, both from a recreational or a semi-serious point of view. Um, and for someone maybe that doesn't do, hasn't, hasn't that experience maybe of doing a lot of exercise, especially if you're throwing into it, yourself into it a little bit, how important is it that you really do look at what you're eating to supplement that? Because you need to be able to help your performance and recovery, especially if you're new to this. You know, it's not going to be about throwing stuff into exercise and cutting out loads of food. That's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And I think if you're going to be being more, um, take, having more activity or more exercise, you need, need to think about having a diet that's going to be support that. But actually, the, um, whenever I'm talking to people, they're often if they're telling me they go back to doing exercise or activity, they always say, and I must think about my proteins that I'm intaking, how much more protein do I need? The reality is that unless you're an elite athlete, um, in which case you would have really good nutrition support, or what I call a serious sportsman. So this is somebody who really, maybe he's not at the elite level, but is, is training hard and, and, and regularly taking part in exercises. The majority of, of people just need to, to really just have a balanced diet. Think about where their protein sources are coming from. And that would include things uh, like eggs or soya or tofu um, or meats or chicken. You know, so really think about your protein choices, um, but not necessarily think about taking any additional protein. Um, the body, um, the body, human body doesn't actually need a lot of protein. Um, it's, it's one of those urban myths that you just need an awful lot of protein to sustain yourself. I mean, we do need protein and we do need to have high quality proteins, but I'm, I'm never an advocate of people going to buy the protein shakes or their, um, their recovery protein drinks or their pre-exercise protein drinks, unless you really are uh, being a, an elite athlete, in which case your level of exercise and the level of trauma that, that you're doing to your skeletal muscles um, is, that much, is that much greater. So I suppose the best way is not to obsess about things. Stick to that balanced diet. Make sure you're thinking about your protein choices mm -hmm. and they're things that you like to eat. Think about your water and fluid intake. A lot of people will embark on, but if they're running, they'll suddenly start embarking on a lot of exercise and they won't think they've got to re keep replacing their fluids as well. So we do have a lot of problems with people getting sort of dehydrated when they're exercising a lot. Thinking about eating regularly so that if you know you're going to be going for a run, you know, it's, it's not the time for also skipping meals and deciding that you're not going to be eating or, or you, you know, you're not going to eat for a whole day. And I'm going to do a run because if I don't eat and I go for a run, I'll lose more weight or what have you. That's not, a, that's, as you said, that's a recipe for disaster. But enjoying it, having fun, enjoy your food and enjoy having the exercise as well. Yeah, well, on that, I mean, um, during this, I think there are quite a lot of statistics that would back up that a lot of people have taken up something, things like running over this last year. Um, and so, I mean, speaking for myself here, I really hope that races start again in 2021. And, and lots of people that are new to running may be setting goals to do their first half full marathon, maybe throwing themselves into a triathlon. How important is it then that if they are training in a block of, I don't know, 12 to 16 weeks, that they really do um, look into how they are recovering from that? So we're not talking at this elite level. Okay, so in a, we're talk, talking about somewhere in the middle of what we were just talking about, yeah, aren't we? Yeah. Um, but yeah. also, so not only sustaining that training, but also thinking about how they're actually going to fuel the event, because that's going to take a lot of, and I'm guilty of so many trying nearly everything to try and get me through a marathon <laughs> uh, and still maybe not found the ideal solution. 
Um, but really, really experimenting with how you're going to fuel yourself because it's different for everyone. Oh, it is absolutely different for everyone. Do you know, I think one of the best bits of advice we go is to find a group of people and actually train with a group of people. You know, um, partly because if there's a group of you, um, you're going to have the motivation, aren't you? If there's, if there's more than one of you, it, it's not quite so bad on a damp, drizzly February morning to do that run if you're meeting up with a few people. And I know we've got to maintain social distancing and all of those sort of things, but we can still, you know, have some group activities. So I think the best bit of advice I, I've ever thought about um, is to um, do things as a group you know, rather than in your own. And then obviously there are some great resources out there and the NHS and the Department of Health actually do produce some resources and guidance for people who are embarking on their first half marathon or their first marathon. Um, so look at their guidance and they do talk a lot about a balanced start. They do talk about not obsessing about protein, making sure that you're having carbohydrates and that you're sort of eating well in and around your training periods. So, and I think that generally is, is, is the message that we're giving out to people. Um, certainly I think the group thing is really important because then you can talk with people about the highs and lows of the experience you're going on and it might help you to overcome that um, barrier. I can remember a few years ago when I did my first 26 mile um, walk, you know, um, I, I used to do all the sort of moonwalks and all those sorts of things. And I remember the first time I did it, and I trained all over the South Downs. I walked for hours as a group. Um, what I didn't do was, which I, in hindsight, should have done, should have been trained in Brighton because, of course, most of the moonwalks, et cetera, are done in towns. And so I wasn't really aware of pavements and the impact that pavements would have. So, again, it's about thinking about the activity you're going to do and sort of think about what your goal's going to be, okay, so that you do your, your trainings appropriate for the thing that you're going to do. You're doing it as a group so you can share ideas, um, get the motivation, and keep sticking to that balanced diet. Um, you might need to increase your protein a little bit, but do it with an egg or just some tofu or some soya. Don't buy the protein shakes so much. Okay. Um, going back to your work here, Kathy, I'm interested to hear about some of your research interests, some of the things that you focus on. Can you tell us a little bit about what you like to work on? And I'm especially interested to hear about um, some of the bits you've done with dementia. Okay, well, I'm quite an eclectic person when it comes to research. So from, at the moment, for example, we've, we're doing a lot of what we call service improvement programs. So this is research or action research type methodologies where we're looking to improve um, patient outcomes. And in particular, we're looking at the nutritional um, care of patients um, in hospitals. So we're doing a lot of work at the moment to improve patient outcomes. And that's because we do know that going into, into hospital um, has, has a particular consequence and, and there's a, quite a high level of malnutrition. That's not a new statistic, it's, it's a very old statistic actually, it's been around since the 1950s. So we know about a third of the people in our care um, in hospitals are undernourished or, or at risk of malnutrition. So it's about making sure that they um, have the appropriate food to help them both with their recovery. And I think COVID-19 has highlighted that as well. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the role of, you know, the outcomes of people who are overweight, the impact of vitamin D and all those sort of things. So we're doing all the service improvement things. Um, at the moment, it's looking at secondary care, which is hospital care, but we're going to be looking at nursing home and care homes as well. That's another very high risk group, um, very frail. Um, they have something called sarcopenia or sarcopenic obesity, where they're losing muscle mass. So we're looking at ways in which we can help them to stay healthier for longer. 
You asked about dementia, and of course, a lot of the work I do with dementia is with my little favorite robot called Paro. Mm -hmm. So Paro is my little ro white robotic seal. Um, and in Brighton, we've been very instrumental in, um, in forging the acceptance of Paro by really addressing some of the concerns practitioners have had in using him in terms of health and safety and those sorts of things. Um, and with some colleagues, um, we've got some um, studies coming forward, um, slightly delayed because of COVID-19, but we're going back into clinical practice with our paro robot and to try and actually measure um, the impact he's actually having in terms of people's social engagement. Um, and this often includes things around food as well. So the relationship between being socially engaged and eating food, particularly if you have dementia, are, are really quite significant because if you are engaged, um, able to communicate better, then um, you know, then that often can translate in, in eating a little bit more, being a little bit calmer, and not having to have medications to uh, regulate anxiety and those sorts of things. So there's some really interesting stuff happening out there. So most of my work at the moment is actually around people in, people who are requiring our support and care. Yeah, um, a lot of people may not know about Paro, the, the, the robot. Can you tell us a, a little bit, for those that don't know, can you sort of explain a little bit about that? Well, Paro is an amazing thing, really. Um, Paro is a little white uh, robotic harp seal. Um, and he was developed in Japan. Uh, Japan have quite a, a strong culture of what we call companion animals or companion pets, which mm. are not really, you know, uh, for their, to keep them company. Um, but the inventors of Paro noticed that Paro has a very positive effect on people's mood and behavior. And I'll be honest with you that when I first met Paro, I was slightly cynical as to whether he'd, there would be any, any uh, impact at all. But one of the things I noticed uh, in part when researching with Paro was that he did have an impact. Um, people would um, reach out to him, they would uh, talk more, they would um, engage with him because as a robotic seal, he's not very frightening. Um, to our knowledge, we don't know anyone who's ever been attacked by a baby seal. Uh, people have been scratched by cats or bitten by dogs. So if you use a robotic tool that look, a toy that looks like something like that, then it may not, you may have, you know, those memories may resurface. But to our awareness, nobody's ever been upset by a white baby heart seal. The proportions are um, baby-like, so he's got a relatively big head, big round eyes, okay, he weighs about the same as a baby, so there's lots of tactile reasons. He responds to sound and touch, and he makes a mewing sound. A few people dislike it. I do have a colleague, actually, who really dislikes the sound of Paro, but a lot of people find him really engaging. Um, and, um, and if you turn him on, people, he will people will start talking, they will start communicating. So we've used, he's been used a lot um, with people with dementia to help regulate anxiety and, and, and fear. Um, he's been used with children uh, undergoing chemotherapy, you know, as a sort of, again, relieving stress, children with autism. So there's an ever increasing body of knowledge uh, about how you can use heroin in a therapeutic way, not as a toy, but as a therapeutic way to help in the management of distress with individuals. It's a great little thing, actually, and you can see videos him all over the internet if you're interested. Yeah, um, you're, you're clearly extremely passionate about your work, and that'll resonate with your students, no doubt, as well. And, and the field you're working, we're working in nutrition. So much interest, I think, more about from young people now than previous generations, wouldn't you say? Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. We've been, we've noticed a big difference. Um, a lot of my work is with nursing and medical students, and um, 
nurses have always been interested in food, um, but I've noticed in medical students uh, an ever-growing interest in the relationship between the foods that you're consuming, your health, and how they are working as doctors. So uh, with some colleagues uh, at Brighton and at Cambridge, um, we've been doing a lot of work um, looking at how health professionals, including doctors, are engaged with nutrition to sort of try and work out a, how we can, what they need to know. It's really important to know what people need to know, how we can support them to have appropriate learning and education, and how that can then be translated into meaningful um, clinical practice or therapeutic interventions. So we've got a number of things happening across the country, actually, looking at various aspects of education of nutrition with the health professional students and including the doctors. So it's exciting times for, for medicine and healthcare. Mm. Um, and what would you say to anyone thinking about coming to, to study nutrition at Brighton? I think we are, are on the cusp of being a really exciting university when it comes to nutrition, um, both in our professional courses, but of course we do have our, our uh, we've now got our BSc Honours in Nutrition, which is a new degree that we've just started. Okay, so we have, you know, this is, um, Students who do the nutrition degree will, uh, it's been accredited by the Association for Nutrition. So it's, it's something that's, that's um, they'll be able to get a, a, a recognized qualification at the end of it. It is a voluntary register, unlike some of our other professional courses, but we're hoping in the future that the nutritionist register will not be voluntary, it'll be a requirement, but that requires a little legal maneuverings through, uh, through government um, circles and those sorts of things. Um, so I think, I think if you want to get engaged with a really new and vibrant um, group of lecturers, uh, vibrant courses, then I think Brighton is definitely the place to come because at Brighton we're not afraid to have difficult conversations. So we will listen to different perspectives, different viewpoints, and we welcome um, we welcome people who are just curious to know and curious to understand a little bit more. So I think Brighton is a really exciting place. We also have a, a tremendously exciting third sector provision. So a lot of voluntary uh, provision of related to food and well-being, um, both in Brighton itself, but in the surrounding towns and countryside. So we have some really exciting what I call third sector projects running, which engage food and mental well-being, um, food and, and uh, in terms of poverty. Um, you know, trying to tackle those those issues about poverty and, and food poverty and nutrition inequality. Um, so I think I think Brighton's a really exciting place to come and study. Great. At the end of each podcast, Kathy, we we ask each guest the a few, the same questions, same to every guest. So I'm just going to rattle through them just to be a quick fire round, really. So first one: What advice would you give to your younger self? Be more courageous. Okay, I think I think as a young person, um, opportunities are out there. Okay, so as a young person, if I was young again now, I'd be more courageous, and I would take make better use of the opportunities that that present themselves. So just to be mm -hmm. more courageous. And mm -hmm. um, if you could study any other course at Brighton, what might that be? I knew you were going to ask this question, and I, I have pondered this because I, I love psychology, I love sociology, I love science. But actually, if I had to study another course, and it isn't another course for me, I would always choose nursing. At the end of the day, um, as a course, as a nurse, 
um, you have so much scope to engage with people. We're, we're not, we have, we're very privileged as nurses. We, we spend a lot of time with our clients and our patients, more than the, any other professional group probably. Um, and as such, the scope of things that we get involved with is tremendous. So there's so many different roles that we can engage with. So it's not really a new course, but I think if I even if I had to do it again, I'd stick, I'd stick with nursing. Great, that's quite an endorsement. Um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? The South Downs, particularly between Furl and Seaford. Okay, in particular, the South Downs. Love it. I, you know, being on the South Downs is just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Agreed. Tell us something about yourself, which a lot of people may not know. Um, well, I am most relaxed when I'm doing something which is called walking the boundaries and it's a farming habit. Um, being brought up on a farm, one of the things you do is on a farm is you walk around the boundaries or you walk around where you are and you just look, lookering. Sometimes people call it as lookering. And you're looking at the animals you're caring for, you're looking at the soil, you're looking at the trees, you're looking at the environment, you're looking at the, the, the species, the wild animals. And in particular, um, at, the, at my family's farm, which is in the Forest of Dean, overlooking the River Severn. And I reckon that, if, that, that there is the best views ever from a high hill looking down over to the River Severn. So that's, that's where I am my most relaxed, when I am just on my own, walking the boundary. Great. Um, and finally, if you could invite three people to dinner, excluding family, so your ideal fantasy dinner guests, um, past or present, who would they be and why? Wow, I thought about this as well. <laughs> Firstly, I'd have somebody called Elsie Widdison. Elsie Widdison was a dietitian and nutritionist, and she was really important um, for the government-mandated addition of vitamins to food uh, and wartime rationing. Uh, in World War II, so she was just an amazing woman, and and from her there's there's a, a Buddhism lab, lab lab up in Cambridge, and um, every year there's something called the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. So it's very much involved with trying to understand what people are eating, where the deficiency states are. So it's really important figurehead when it comes to nutrition. So she'd be on my table, okay. Um, I then have um, a chap called Thomas Davis. Um, this is very, way back in history now, 1794, he wrote um, for the, a report for the Board of Agricultural and International Improvements. And what he was doing, he was describing how food um, is being produced and the relevance of food production for a population. Um, and if you read his work, some of the things that he was saying are very res res resonate with today and what we're thinking about today. And so I'd like to have him at the table. I'd like to have a conversation with him, looking at our current world and the current state of agriculture and farming to actually see um, where he thinks, have we gone in the direction he, he thought we'd go into? Have, are things better or are things worse? Okay, so I'd like I'd have Thomas at my dinner table. And finally, I'd have Emmeline Pankhurst because of being a woman, Okay, being a woman in, in education, I've been very privileged that I've got the vote, I've had the full vote, I've, I've been able to participate in all aspects of, of society's um, roles, I suppose. And yet that's relatively recent in terms of, of, of human history, that women have had that freedom. So I think it'd be very remiss of me not to have at my dinner table somebody who I think has managed to 
provide opportunities and openings for women or the start of opportunities and openings for women um, in a way that um, prior to getting the vote, um, women never had. So I'd have Emmeline Pankhurst. And of course, because I love cooking, I'd cook a fantastic meal for all three of them. Of course you would. Uh, I really should keep a tally of uh, the, the guests that people choose. Emily Pankhurst is, it would be high up the, the list, I think, of, of, people, of, of, of people that people have chose. Um, probably David Attenborough is just about top, but Emily Pankhurst might be uh, somewhere near there as well. But Cathy, thanks so much for your time. It's, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and hopefully something can, can take away some of those tips that we've been talking about to find a, a more balanced 2021 and a very healthy a healthy 2021 as well so thanks so much for your time really appreciate it that's my pleasure thank you very much it's been an actual pleasure conversation and if i had my final tip to everybody is to just enjoy the food you have you know and and be kind to yourself a little bit you know humans are human we don't have to be perfect all of the time brilliant thanks so much kathy that's my it for pleasure. this podcast but uh, i'll be back next week please do share on social media if you enjoyed this and subscribe to via all the usual podcast platforms thanks for listening <laughs>